everyone, and welcome to JOY, a podcast from St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas, where our conversations about life and faith always include Jesus, others, and you. Today, my special guest is the Reverend Dr. Chris Keller. Chris was the founding priest here, establishing St. Margaret's in West Little Rock in 1991. In 98, he left to pursue a Doctor of Theology degree, and after completing that, he returned to our community as the director of the Institute for Theological Studies at St. Margaret's. He was still in that position when I came as the rector, which was a partnership that, at least in my opinion, didn't last as long as we would have liked. Chris was then called to serve Trinity Cathedral, and just earlier this year, he retired. Chris, it's always a treat to have a conversation with you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Mary. I'm delighted to be here. I always love when I get a chance to talk to you, and I always love it when I get a chance to reconnect with St. Margaret's, even if it's by Zoom. I also note that you are now in your 10th year as rector of St. Margaret's, which makes you the longest tenured person in that job. And that I know, because I've seen it close hand, that the church has flourished and grown under your leadership, and that has been a J-O-Y to watch. It really has been a blessed 10 years, and I'm so grateful for you and Peggy and others who came before me and founded a terrific community. Well, today we want to introduce our listeners to something that is near to our hearts here. It was your brainchild, and I still remember the conversation in 2011 in which you first told me about it. You wanted to create a theological debate camp for high school students. I remember thinking, that is a crazy idea. <laughs> How many teenagers are really going to sign up for that? And happily, I was wrong. It's been a beautiful success. Chris, tell us about your vision for SUMA. When I was the director of the Institute for Theological Studies at St. Margaret's, we had programs for clergy, programs for the public, and we had programs for leadership at St. Margaret's. And it occurred to me that it would be good to have a program that was aimed for teenagers, not necessarily in the traditional vein of youth ministry, but something that would draw more deeply on the theological tradition of the church. I had noticed that as I have gotten older and balder and grayer, that the Episcopal Church has gotten older and balder and grayer with me. <laughs> and I thought that one more time I would like to take a run at the rising generation and to stir things up in a good way for the cause of the Christian faith among them. The question was, how should we do that? And I wanted it to be something that would be both smart and fun. And my hunch was, I had two hunches behind that. One is my hunch is that high school students like being challenged intellectually, and they really might like it being challenged intellectually in matters of faith. I mean, they're naturally in a questioning phase of life. So being able to entertain questions and examine them in depth might be something that would really appeal to them. And I thought that debating might be a fun way to do that. So just put on my thinking cap and how can we use debate as a way to uh, challenge young people and to help them grow in their faith? I asked the Reverend Cindy Fruk, a colleague at St. Margaret's, who's a deacon at St. Margaret's, who is both smart and fun, if she would help me come up with a plan and implement it to do that. And so we went to work on that. We wanted to create a college atmosphere. We know that high school students aren't in college, and we don't want to pretend that they were. But for a couple hours a day, they can do that kind of work at that kind of level. So we wanted a college atmosphere. And we asked Sewanee if they would let us do it on their campus to help create that atmosphere. And they were happy to do that. 
the students would come and they would have five days of pretty intense lectures and seminars leading to two days of a debate tournament. In the debate tournament, every student would debate at least three times, and they would have to debate both for and against whatever resolution it was that we were debating. First year, the resolution was resolved. Capital punishment is morally justified. Whatever your opinion is on that, you were going to have to debate for and against your own opinion. Another one we debated a couple of years after that was resolved in Christ, there is hope for Cruella DeVille. That was a lot of fun, too. We also wanted to get college professors, real college professors, involved in the program. And we had a bunch available at Suwannee. And we also took some with us. One professor from Hendricks went with us for a few years so that the students would actually have a chance for an hour in those first five days to be around a table with 10 other students and a college professor. And like, you know, this is what college is like. But then the professors liked it because they got to talk about theological topics, which they don't normally do in their English or philosophy or history classroom. So we did all of that. And then we wanted to also do lots of kid fun. So camp fun, ice cream socials and talent shows and kickball games. Kids want to be kids, too. And actually, you can be 55 and all that stuff is still fun, too. So it was, fun. it was not only fun for them, it was fun for us. Because debate can be cutthroat, we set out from the beginning to not make it that way and to emphasize that we believe that God is truth and that God is love. If you're trying to speak the truth, you have to do it in love or it's not the truth you're speaking when you're mm-hmm. talking about God. We began at the very outset to encourage an ethos of speaking at a high level intellectually, being well-informed and thinking reasonably and carefully, and to doing it in love, you know, learning to walk and chew gum at the same time, to speak truth and love at the same time. You weren't the only person that was skeptical about any of that. Just about anybody that I talked to was polite and said nothing. And then five years later, they said, yeah, I never thought that was good. <laughs> In fact, one theology professor in the Northeast who I'd never met, but who I admired greatly, heard about it and wrote me and said, this is a terrible idea. (laughs) (laughs) Cindy and I weren't sure either, but we were able to recruit 49 students, almost all of them from the Little Rock area, two from Mississippi, which is another story, but to get on the bus with us to go to Sewanee is an experiment. I learned later that one of those students' mother actually bribed her to go to the cinema. <laughs> the <laughs> Whatever girl, works. The girl was smart, but she was shy. And her mother thought, well, this will help bring her out. The girl actually became a great debater and loved Suma, but she says her mother never paid off on the bribe. <laughs> <laughs> and as it turned out, we got them down there and we were right. They did love being challenged intellectually. The fact they just relished it. I mean, I was way over their heads. And they didn't mind. Instead of me having to come down to their level, they came up to mine. And they had tremendous fun in the outside stuff, but they also had fun in the lecture stuff and in the seminar stuff and in the debating. They learned that they could lose a debate and it didn't ruin their day. And they learned to speak the truth in love. And starting from the beginning, an atmosphere and a culture developed around it and a set of traditions over time that where the returning students guard that ethos of speaking truth and love and teach mm-hmm. it to the new ones.
Well, now that I know how successful it's been, I can look and see just how wonderful that vision is to teach young people to think about their faith, to learn about it, to learn how to articulate what they believe and the opposite of what they believe, what's the argument behind it, and to do that in a setting that's about fun and fellowship that also kind of nurtures their aspirations for higher education. It's all really wonderful. Why the name SUMA? Two things go into the name. One is that if somebody's really, really smart and works really, really hard, they might graduate summa cum laude from college. Summa means with highest honors. The Summa Theologiae happens to be the title of probably the greatest piece of theology that's ever been yet been written by Thomas Aquinas. And he meant it for lay people as an introduction, a comprehensive introduction to the Christian faith. Summa, we say, is a way to engage a comprehensive understanding of the Christian faith while debating at the highest levels of intellectual distinction. So that's where the name came. So I think the sticking point in the vision for me is debate. I was not really exposed to debate growing up. I'm not even sure we had a debate society in my high school. Really, my greatest exposure to debates has been through televised political debates, which frankly always leave me feeling more anxious rather than more informed. And I suppose the other form of debate that I see takes place on social media, where people just put out their opinions without really backing them up. And then other people assert their own opinions and people get angrier. But again, they don't really learn anything. How is debate different in SUMA? And why would we use debate as a means for teaching theology? SUMA is really privileged to be a Lilly Foundation-funded program. We're one of, I think, 110, maybe 115 youth theological institutes that Lilly funds across the country. And they have a big meeting every year in Indianapolis. And we go to it to talk about what the other groups are doing and to hear presentations and so forth. And out of those 110 or 115 programs, we're the only one that uses debate because it seems counterintuitive to think that that's a good way to approach theology. I wanted to try it because I thought it could work and I thought it would be fun. At the time I conceived of SUMA, I had just come off writing a doctoral dissertation and I'd learned in the process of writing that that I'd made my way through college, I'd gotten a master's in divinity, and I was halfway towards a doctorate. And I didn't know how to make an argument. Argument was kind of a dirty word to me, but Mm. you write a doctoral dissertation, you've got to have a thesis and you've got to defend it. And in order to do that, I actually had to learn logic. And I went and bought Copy's Introduction to Logic and started on page one (laughs) and learned (laughs) logic. And when I got to the end of that, I thought, you know, boy, I really wish I'd known all this a long time ago. It would have helped me in high school. I thought, I can teach this to high school students. I know I can do that. So it's not just debate, it's the parts of an argument. The three parts of an argument are a claim, evidence, and warrants. The warrant connects the evidence to the claim. And I can teach that to a high school student, they can use it. And then there's variations on all of that. And so I thought debate will be a good way to do that because it gives incentive to learn quickly. You'll learn speaking skills too, which are also helpful. It just puts a little energy into the task of learning if you're actually going to have to make a case for something and then defend it with another person in front of a judge. The first camp on opening night in our opening service in my sermon, I laid out the thesis, and I can still quote myself from it. Our thesis in Summa is that debating leads to clearer thinking 
and that clearer thinking can open pathways deeper into faith and into hope and into love. That was our thesis. And it's proved out because I think it brings us a quick step to the process of engagement. When students get there their first day and they know that five days from then, that's when they learn the resolution they're going to debate and they're going to have to research it. They're going to have to defend it. And they're learning the parts of the argument and they're having to put it all together. And boy, they just learn it fast. By the end of camp, they think they're pretty smart and they are smarter Mm -hmm. than when they came. We see that prove out. You know, you run into somebody's mother at the grocery store after school started the next year and they say, boy, Jane is doing better in school. And we think Suma's the reason. And wow. it's not that I didn't teach them English or history at, at Suma, but I taught them how to think about anything. Debating just helps with that. But you have to tame it. If you just teach the debating part, then I don't care what age you are, you want to win. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to win, but if unbridled, it becomes a blood sport. A lot of debate is taught that way. There's a great movie that most years at SUMA will have students watch it. It's called The Great Debaters, a wonderful story based on fact of a historically black college back in the 1950s, maybe it was the 40s, whose debate team debated at Harvard and won. And it's a magnificent story about debate. But the debate teacher there says, who is my enemy? My opponent is my enemy. What am I going to do? I'm going to kill him. I'm going to crush him. Whenever we watch that, I say, this is a fantastic movie, but we're not here to crush the enemy. We're hunting bigger game in Suma than that. ago, I was listening to another podcast. I think it was an episode of Radio Lab where they were, well, they were educating me about what does happen in a lot of high school debate tournaments. The word is spreading where they go really fast. Their object is to make as many points as possible. And so they speak so fast that to me, it's unintelligible. And that's not what you're doing, huh? Yeah, I heard about that right when we were starting soon. And I said, we're not going to do that. And so how are we going to not do that? Well, I had control of that because I was the person that was making the criteria for judging. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Power. (laughs) And so so one of the criteria is, are you comprehensible? Have you spoken at a pace that a normal listener can follow? Any student that comes to SUMA will have one or two every year that has learned to debate in that framework. They have to struggle to rein themselves in because, I mean, you can just do it with volume of words. Because, you know, you're making an argument, you know, if if you speak in twice as fast, you have twice as much evidence you can give. We don't have any interest in doing that. I don't want to teach somebody to do that. And I'm not going to encourage it. In fact, we discourage it. Because the point is not winning. The point is expressing ideas. It sounds to me like you're building relationships. You're building the kingdom of heaven, where people can think about their faith and share their ideas and listen to one another, build on it. It's hard to do this in the heat of a debate, but you can do it even then. You're also listening for the good that the other person is representing and making their case too, because the world is full of goodness. Opening chapter of Genesis, God created it and it was good. Thomas Aquinas took that and he ran with it. There's a goodness in being a rock that is peculiar to the rock. There's a goodness in being a bullfrog that is peculiar to the bullfrog. There's a goodness to being human that's peculiar to the human. But Aquinas' analysis of evil led him to an unexpected conclusion, which is that even evil is a privation 
or a corruption of the good. Even if somebody's representing an idea that is abhorrent in a certain way, there's something that is good in that idea that they are trying to stand on, even if they've corrupted it, distorted it, or they've forgotten some other good thing that they also need to be considering. In debate, especially when your passions are up, learning to ask yourself, what is the good that my opponent is representing there? And if I can identify that, now we can talk because I'm representing a good too. And there may be some goods that both of us need to be considering here that we neither one of us has thought of. And let's talk about that. Now you're on a quest. That's not a debate skill. That's a life skill. That's a faith skill. Learning to obliterate an opponent with volume of words or even sharpness of ideas, I don't need to teach somebody to do that. They can learn that somewhere else. But assume we've got something else we can give them while honoring the intellect and using it and sharpening it. Now, you require the participants to argue both sides of a resolve. What is that like for the students? We try to calibrate that in one way, is that I've never given them a debate resolution that I think is the kind that their response to it is going to be so visceral that they almost can't argue the other side. We might toss around something about abortion in a lecture for just a minute, and mm-hmm. I'm not ever going to have them debate abortion in summa. Because I think that it just kind of reaches too deep into the gut for people pro and con, pro-life, pro-choice. Probably we would lose the opportunity to engage both sides on that. Generally, I try to find something that they find interesting and that they will probably have an opinion about, but it's not life or death for them. Usually when I announce the resolution, they're all thinking, oh, yeah, I got this one. I know, yeah, I, at least I've got the affirmative. I got the negative. I, I know that. The other one, I don't know how you would debate that, but you can sit down and think about an issue that you've never thought about before. You think about it for five minutes and you start to see some complexity in it. And then you go to the library. The librarian actually does an orientation to the Sewanee Library. They get in there and, you know, by the third day, they're confused because it wasn't nearly as clear as they thought it was. They start to engage with the other side. And there's actually a freedom and the requirement to debate both sides of an issue in that you're not making a statement about yourself to other people in the room by the position you're taking, because everybody's going to have to take both positions. There's a controversy like capital punishment or civil disobedience or something else that we're going to be debating. You get a chance to work with an idea that you're not sure of. Maybe your friends think that one of the opinions is clear to them, and you wouldn't really want to brook their disapproval, but in summa, you have to, and you get a chance to work with that case. You get to think about it more clearly with the freedom of making the strongest possible case you can for both sides, even an unpopular side. You got no choice. I think that there's some freedom in that, and I think that students kind of like that. So what have you seen in the students who have participated? Have you seen some good, some changes in them? One student who was involved in the pilot project, and she was pretty young when she first came in. She stayed in SUMA for three years. So she started as a sophomore in high school and stayed through her senior year. She transferred from one school on Little Rock to another while she was in high school. In the new school, she went to Central High and her mom went to the first parent-teacher conference after, you know, halfway through the first term and sat down with the teacher. And the teacher said, you know, look, I'm going to say the girl's name is Amy. 
you know, we got a big class and Amy walked in and sat down. I looked at her and I admit, I thought, here comes another dumb blonde. She said to the mother, I got to tell you, Amy is not a dumb blonde. She had really impressed the teacher quickly with the quality of her work and the carefulness of her thought. And her mother was giving credit to Suma for having done that. And I really think that Amy, when she first came to Suma, thought of herself as a dumb blonde. She could pull it off. But she learned very quickly that she was way more than that. Just the critical thinking skills had already made a difference to her. The girl whose mother bribed her, or tried to, <laughs> or successfully did, but didn't pay off, she just needed the opportunity to find her voice. And she found it. She was always smart, but she just didn't know how to show that to the world. But she quickly learned how to do that. I mean, see, lots of stories of faith. About the time you're 15, you read, you start to learn that not everybody in the world is a Christian and that there's some smart people that say that being Christian is dumb. And you learn that not only are you smarter than you thought you were, that this faith that you're a part of is smarter than you thought it was. You learn to connect to some really great thinking in the history of the Christian church. Not that that thinking is at an end, not all the great thoughts have been thought. Most of the problems that we think of as great challenges to faith are actually not new problems. And important thought has been given to them in the past, and the students learn to connect with that. And the girl who got bribed, I'll say one more thing about her. Her mother told me that she and her sister and her mom and dad were sitting at breakfast one day, and this girl I'll call her Josephine. Josephine says some guys at school were saying yesterday, some of her friends are just saying religion is just dumb. And she said, you know, they don't know what they think or why they think it. She was the least bit intimidated that some smart guys in her class thought that religion was dumb because she already knew better than they did what's dumb and what isn't. You were talking about how the issues you give to the students to debate, they're always more complex than they seem on the surface. And it sounds like part of what the process does is it also reveals that human beings are much more complex and have a greater potential than we might realize when we first encounter one another. So. It's just great offering students to think deeply about their faith so they get that opportunity, but they also get the opportunity to unleash some of their own potential. If only I had a time machine, <laughs> I could go back and participate in SUMA. How wonderful. People say that to me a lot. Oh, boy, I wish I could go. And so when I was the dean at the cathedral, actually one year, I offered SUMA to the adults. We had two seminars. And I taught them the same stuff I teach the high school students. And they actually debated the first SUMA resolution, Resolve Capital Punishment is Morally Justified. They did it on a Sunday morning in an open forum at the church using SUMA rules. Each debate had three judges, often including a SUMA high school student <laughs> as a judge. Nice. And it was really fun. And they did a great job. Well, SUMA has been so successful. It did start as a program of the Institute for Theological Studies at St. Margaret's, but now the University of the South has adopted it, and I think that's the right place for it. It's going to continue to flourish there. For any of our listeners, if you have a teenager in your household or someone you know that might enjoy SUMA, camp is coming up again next summer. So, Chris, where can they get more information about that? If you Google Suwannee SUMA two words, S-U-M-M-A. That'll take you to the SUMA website, and you can go on from there. There's this great uncertainty about the world of high school summer programs that's abroad, mm -hmm. and no one's in a position to say what next summer is going to look like. 
we are going to have camp. This past summer on the fly, we figured out how to do SUMA at a distance online mm-hmm. camp, and we did do that. And if that's what we need to do again, we will do it again. But our plan A is we really hope that we'll be able to be on campus. We'd much rather do that if that's safe and allowable. But we're going to have it one way or the other. Good. Thinking about a generation of young people learning to be more thoughtful about their faith and more loving and disagreement is truly enough to complete my joy for today. Chris, thank you so much for being our guest. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Also want to thank all of our listeners and encourage you all to take these ideas about thoughtfulness and love into your own conversations. And please join us again next time because our J-O-Y is not complete without you. is a production of St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Thanks to Stephen Vano, who composed and performed our theme music, and to Heidi Soule, our producer. Mm-hmm.